We're going to die anyway unless we're alive when the Lord comes. We're either going to die trying to do God's will or trying to avoid it. And if trying to do God's will shortens our tenure on earth, all the better, because we might get a martyr's crown. And it would be an unspeakable privilege to die for Christ, especially since it's not like we avoid death if we refuse to court risk for the sake of Jesus. We're going to die anyway. You know, we only get to die once. We need to make it a good one. Ronnie Stevens is the associate pastor of Harvest Church. Hi, friends, and welcome to this edition of Mid-South Viewpoint. I'm Byron Tyler. We're here on the Bot Radio Network. Ronnie is my guest today. Ronnie, good to have you back in the studio. been too long. It's a pleasure to be back with you, Byron. Did you get jet lag when you travel to Chile? No, not really. It, although it is three time zones away, it's actually three time zones to the east of Memphis, which is mind-blowing when you think you're looking at the Pacific Ocean, two time zones east of New York City. Now, this was a recent trip you just returned from after spending some time with a pastor who has a ministry to encourage other pastors. He's a superstar pastor who travels to remote places to find indigenous missionaries who are laboring in isolation alone to bring resources to them, encouragement to them, teaching assets to them that they would otherwise not know about. Ronnie, what do you think about when you see a brother like this living a life committed to Christ in this way? Well, you think that God is the only way you account for it. Why else would you renounce the world or not just go after comfort or money or feathering your own nest? So it's a precious thing. And especially when you see the remote indigenous pastors uh, in a heavily Roman Catholic country, you think, how did this happen? Yeah. Well, it happened because God did it. You were kind of close to the Patagonian Mountains or the range there? Or? We were in the southern range of the Andes, which is basically even that far south. We were far enough south to see penguins, but it was actually northern Patagonia, okay. which is in Chile and Argentina. Wow. So, and that was your first trip to go? It was actually my first time in South America, my first time south of the equator. Out of all the travels you've done in your lifetime? Yeah, well, most of my travels have been uh, Europe. Mideast, Far East. I've just never been south of the equator. From Jerusalem to Rome, a year in the book of Acts. It's the new book by Ronnie Collier Stevens, available on Rampart Publications. And this is what your fourth publication, I believe, with Rampart. Yes, I've been pretty formulaic so far. I just write <laughs> daily devotions through books. They're, they're a little bit d distinctive because most uh, daily devotions are from the whole Bible. And of course, the classic is My Utmost for His Highest, which Oswald Chambers' widow compiled after his death yes. from various talks that Oswald gave. But I just try to plow through uh, a book of the Bible, and I talk, and my wife types, and somehow <laughs> we get a book out of it. I love so. that. Well, let's recap. Our friends that listen to this program regularly know that you are a native of Atlanta, Georgia, graduated from Georgia. We won't talk about the Bulldogs right now. Too painful. <laughs> yeah, too painful. Dallas Seminary graduate. You pastored in churches in Munich, Moscow, and Budapest, and also for a few years here in Memphis at First Evangelical Church. And you and your wife, Jane, actually lived, of course, being pastor in Moscow, there in Moscow, Russia. We did. In light of the news that we see about Russia, Ukraine, I know you still have a heart for the people, thinking about the gospel, the church, in light of what you see happening in Ukraine and Russia right now. Well, I love the Russian people. I've lived two different tenures in Russia, one 92 to 94, one 
2016 to two th- almost the beginning of 2020. I love the Russian people dearly, but what Russia has done in Ukraine cannot be defended in any way, shape, or fashion. It's completely wrong. Somebody challenged me the other day about the corruption in Ukraine. I said, well, of course Ukraine is corrupt. You don't think Russia's corrupt? You don't think Washington is corrupt? But Ukraine stayed on their side of the border. Russia invaded Ukraine. There's no defense for what they've done. And they won't stop unless somebody stops them in Ukraine. They'll go to Moldova. They'll go to one of the Baltic states, Latvia, Lithuania, or Estonia. They have to be stopped. Yeah. Why did you choose the book of Acts to write this book? Um, Well, probably because it was easy. (laughs) Uh, Not every book of the Bible is as easy to teach as the others. And of course, it, it depends on which books you've studied, which books you've preached on. Someone asked me to teach in India 25 years ago, and they said, you'll have a choice. You can tell me later. You can teach on Jeremiah, or you can do a New Testament survey. And I said, I'll tell you today. And they said, what? I said, New Testament survey. They said, how do you know already? I said, because I'll have to study like crazy for months to teach Jeremiah. When you're a missionary, you get invited to missions conferences. And if you're going to preach on a mission subject, probably you're going to be in the book of Acts some. It was familiar. So it was the next logical book to go to. What are the main takeaways from the book of Acts? Well, of course, um, there have been hundreds of church histories written from Eusebius in the fourth century right on up until yesterday. There's only been one inspired church history. One takeaway is how much can come from one person committing himself to the discipleship or the evangelization of one person. As you know, the two-volume Luke Acts was written to help a man we know almost nothing about called Theophilus in his Christian faith. We don't even know if Theophilus was saved or not. Some people think he was, and this is a kind of first catechism. My own inexpert, non-scholarly opinion is that he was almost there, but not quite. So Luke said about getting him over the hump. And in doing that, we have the most of the New Testament ever written by one writer. If you ask any Christian who wrote most of the New Testament, they'll tell you Paul. Well, that's true if Paul wrote Hebrews. The majority of contemporary scholars don't think he wrote Hebrews. I don't think he wrote Hebrews. And if he didn't, Luke actually wrote more words in the New Testament, in Luke and Acts, than Paul did. And that came of wanting to help one person. I mean, think of that. If you, if you commit yourself to evangelizing or discipling one person, think of the good that can come of it. And think of all the reasons that Luke would not have done, uh, for instance, written a third gospel. It had already been done, already been done twice, already been done perfectly, already been done by people who actually knew Jesus personally, which Luke did not. And yet had not Luke ventured on helping this one man, we wouldn't know what the phrase prodigal son means. We wouldn't know what the phrase good Samaritan means. We wouldn't know anything about the manger, the swaddling clothes, angels over Bethlehem, the shepherds. We'd know none of that. But because one man committed himself to disciple one man, and then all the corroborating background material of the New Testament epistles, which comes from Acts, all we know about Philippi, all we know about Corinth, all we know about Ephesus, all we know about the man who wrote those epistles to those places is because of Luke. Luke picks up where the Gospel of Luke leaves off. About how much time was there between the book of Luke and the book of Acts? Well, if you're asking me how much time between the compositions of the two books, I have no idea. But immediately after the 
ascension, there's a 10-day wait before the fall of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, which is 50 days after the resurrection. So it's hardly any time at all. Ronnie, the book of Acts ends with the Apostle Paul imprisoned in Rome. The last two verses of the book say he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. You know, I read these verses recently. Something that stood out to me was he did this at his own expense. Yeah, um, there could be three sources of those funds. It could be the ongoing maintenance of other Christians or what he had saved from the previous contributions. Maybe because of the way Luke worded it, maybe that's not how it happened. He kind of leaves us with the impression that it wasn't uh, donors. So it may be that he continued to make tents. It could even be family money. You know, he was sent from Tarsus to study under Gamaliel. That's like living in India and coming to Harvard. You know, you, you can't just do that unless there's either a huge scholarship or family money. But anyway, Luke wanted to be clear that um, Paul did not have mercenary reasons to do what he did up to the very end. And I remembered in Bible college that the book of Acts ends as an open-ended book compared to other New Testament writers as they say, Greek so-and-so, you know, I send my blessings, yeah. closing out the book. Yeah. The book ends in an optimistic way. Scholars vary on what they think happened afterwards. Um, he, we're pretty unanimous that he, he was released. Some people think he fulfilled his ambition to go all the way to Spain. Uh, that, that's somewhat doubtful, but he was released. Obviously, he was arrested again, imprisoned, and he was um, beheaded under Nero probably in 67 A.D. John Stott has a 62 date. I'm not sure all the reasons why he has an earlier date. Nero died the next year in 68. Um, and I think I mentioned this in the book, but the time would come, quoting F.F. F. Bruce, the time would come when men would name their sons Paul and their dogs Nero. My. <laughs> so yet Paul has the vindication of history, especially over the man who, who murdered him. Ronnie, in what ways should the church today mimic the characteristics of the first century church that the book of Acts describes? Well, I think the main way is not to look inward and not to be only concerned with the maintenance of the status quo. The book of Acts is actually outlined in what we might call the later or the absolutely last commission. We think of the Great Commission as the closing verses of Matthew, but there's a later commission in Acts 1.8 where, where the whole book of Acts is outlined through the words of Jesus. He says that they're to remain in Jerusalem until the power comes upon them, basically through the Holy Spirit, and then they, until they receive power. And then there'll be Christ's witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea. Well, Acts 1 through 7 is Jerusalem and Judea. And in Samaria, well, Acts 8 is Samaria. And unto the uttermost part, well, Acts 9 through 28 is the uttermost part. And the thing to remember is that the job isn't done in Jerusalem before you go to Judea. The job isn't done in Judea before you go to Samaria. The job is not done in those three places before we go to the uttermost part. As a matter of fact, Israel is one of the most resistant cultures in the world to the gospel. So the, the job has never been finished in any one place, and it won't be finished until the Lord comes. But that does not relieve you the responsibility of extending the kingdom to the next place. And we're forever hearing people say, well-meaning people, 
say, well, why are we sending this money overseas? We need missionaries here. We need to help the poor here. We need to do all kinds of things here. That's true, but that's not the mandate we've been given, and that's not the model we've been given in the book of Acts. One of the greatest things I've heard in Memphis in the last five years was our pastor recounting his being discipled by Soup Campbell. Soup Campbell has had a, a marvelous ministry. He could certainly live in any nice suburb. He's remained in Binghampton in a hard, dangerous neighborhood. And he, of all people, could have said, we need resources here. We need all, we can't have too many resources here because the needs are so enormous. But he taught my pastor, Kenan Vaughn, we'll do more good in the inner city of Memphis if we keep our eyes fixed on the evangelization of the world. That's a thrilling thing to grasp, and it's thrilling when you consider the source, when you consider a man who more than almost anybody we know could have said, please, let's don't export these precious assets because we need them so desperately right here where we are. Wow. Well, why has the church, especially in America, seemed to have lost its boldness proclaiming the gospel as seen among first century Christians? Well, uh, boy, that's. I think it would take a prophet or someone with much more insight than I to answer that question authoritatively. And as unpopular as this, the answer I'm about to give is bound to be, I must say that our blessings have turned out to be more of a liability than an asset. When you consider the lack of physical and financial assets that the first century had, you, you realize how astonishing their achievement was. I think we've become addicted to comfort, to security, to blessing. I think maybe we don't want to uh, put it at risk. One of the most precious uh, goals for any Christian, especially in doing ministry, and, and a thing to be prized, is sacrifice. You know, one of the last things we learn from David when he's offered the threshing floor for free. He said he will not offer anything to the Lord that costs him nothing. And our taxes are structured where we want to give. That's going to be taken away soon, I have no doubt, uh, without any real sacrifice. But I once heard Adrian say, you know, a Jew never went to the temple without the intention of making sacrifice. So when we ask the question, when when we say, well, I didn't get anything out of that service, well, maybe you were supposed to leave something at the service. Maybe you were supposed to give something, not, not, not to get something. So it's a commitment to the, the preciousness and the privilege of sacrifice, of having that fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, if we don't sacrifice anything, then we can have no fellowship. And we not only sacrifice, I'm not just talking about money. I'm talking about time. I'm talking about going ourselves. I'm also talking about giving up precious assets. I've, sh- <laughs> I've shocked, uh, maybe on purpose, uh, some churches and places I've spoken at missions conferences by saying, we don't want you to send anybody you can do without. If you can do without them, we can do without them. We only want the people you can't do without. And I've said, I've pointed to the pastor. I'm saying, we want him. We want you to send him. And of course, they, they kind of gasp. We have to embrace this notion of sacrifice. We also have to embrace, we have to remember, this is a priority. This is the last thing Jesus talked about. Last words are, are lasting words. And the last words are the Great Commission. Go to the whole world and make make disciples. Yeah. So we, we just, we've failed in treasuring Christ's priorities as our priorities. That's one of the big differences. I mean, and back to sacrifice, one thing is they're willing to die. They expected to die. And we're 
safety at all costs is our motto, basically. Was there one particular part that you seem to wrestle with more than another when writing this book? Well, yes, it was a harder book to write. And it forced me into really a better structure. I don't know why it was harder to write than the other three, which were uh, two volumes on John and one on Genesis. But I found that when I divided it, each uh, entry into three sections, understanding the text, how we may apply, and how we may pray, it was easier for me to write something to hang on that structure. But it's almost twice as long as the other books, it, and it took longer. It, yeah. took, it actually took longer to edit it than it took to um, write it. Typos are the bane of every writer, and uh, typos always slip through, and um, every typo is like a dagger into my heart. So we just kept going over <laughs> it and over it to try to flush it of typos. So. What encourages you most about the time that you spent developing the book? Well, you just see what an infinite uh, phenomenon the Word of God is. And, you know, they're forever putting new verses in there that you didn't see before. And uh, you say, when did they put that in? When you, when you meditate on the Bible, when you study the Bible, as all Christians can and as all Christians should, you get uh, continual affirmations that this has to be the Word of God. Now, those affirmations come in many ways. They come for one thing, that the text is uh, trans, what we might call transgenerational or trans-temporal, because you know, if you read ancient literature, there's not a lot that's relevant or that can move you. I mean, there are lessons in the, in the Iliad and the Odyssey. There's no doubt about that. But nothing to really change your life, like the book of Genesis, for instance. And it's also transcultural. What is culturally common in one culture, uh, culture is, is totally mysterious in another culture. But we read the Bible, and it speaks to where we are today and, and things that are uh, eminently relevant in our lives. You know that it's the Word of God, and you know it's speaking to you, it's moving to you, it's, it's moving you, it's answering your questions, it's solving your problems, it's teaching you how to live. So the more you saturate yourself in Scripture, Spurgeon said our blood needs to be bibline. You just get these continual affirmations, this is the Word of God written. And it's a thrilling thing, and you're doing yourself a favor. Yeah. You realize how much you're wasting your time on social media and with magazines and whatever idleness, sport, and I'm just preaching to myself here yeah. because I waste time on all those things. You've written this and the other three books that you've authored uh, in a devotional context, format. Why is that particular format important to you? Well, mainly, again, I hate to admit this, mainly because it's the easiest thing for me to do, but also... We need to read Scripture every day, and most of us need a little help reading Scripture every day. I'm actually trying to write a book now that's radically different, not at all like a book of daily devotions, but it's slow going. It's a lot harder. So, <laughs> The personal application for us looking at the upper room experience in Pentecost, that gets a lot of interpretations. What should be the application for us? Always pray. Tozer said uh, they were praying. And you know what? When you're praying, you're not being idle. You're not just waiting. And there's a difference between waiting and watching. Prayer heightens your alertness. It moves you better toward the goal of watching. Also, prayer is catalytic. And we need to be looking for something every day. We need to be looking for His coming every day. We need to be looking to His assignment for us every day. And we do that better in concert with other believers. I heard Eugene Peterson say something once. I'm not sure I believe him. 
But he said, we only learn to pray in groups. In a way, I don't like that because I, I so believe in closet prayer and in learning to, to prevail on our, our knees alone. Tozer said it's almost impossible to get Christians, American Christians, to come to a meeting where the only attraction is God. And he was talking about a prayer meeting. Mm. And if it's just a prayer meeting, the only attraction is God. Yeah. So is that enough? Yeah. Stephen is seen as the first martyr for faith in Christ in Acts chapter 6 as the story unfolds there. How should Christians today regard suffering for Christ even to the point of death as Stephen did? Well, by the way, C.S. Lewis said it should probably be Lazarus because he had to die twice. But uh, you could also say that about the widow of Nain's son and about uh, Jairus' daughter. But I think um, we know that he was full of the Holy Spirit. We know that he was a man of excellence. He was one of the seven chosen in Acts 6. And when we're dead, of course, we'll be alive. But when we're in heaven, it will not have mattered how long we lived. Now it, it matters a lot in our consciousness. We want to put this dreaded thing off as, as long as possible. Calvin said it's not possible for any mortal man to regard his own demise without a tremor. And Calvin was tough as nails. For Calvin to say that is a big deal. Once we're there, though, it will not have mattered how long we lived. It will always matter. It matters now. It'll matter then how we lived. And it could matter how we die. We're going to die anyway unless we're alive when the Lord comes. We're either going to die trying to do God's will or trying to avoid it. And if trying to do God's will shortens our tenure on earth, all the better, because we might get a martyr's crown. And it would be an unspeakable privilege to die for Christ, especially since it's not like we avoid death if we refuse to court risk for the sake of Jesus. We're going to die anyway. You know, we only get to die once. We need to make it a good one. What stands out to you regarding the different missionary journeys the Apostle Paul encountered? Well, the greatest distinction is between the first and the second. And the second really stands out because the first missionary journey was restricted to what today we call Turkey, what was then what's called the Roman, the Roman province of Asia or Asia Minor. It's in Acts 13 and Acts 14. And when the apostles came back, they convened the Council of Jerusalem to, to define the gospel and with special reference to what about the Gentiles? Do they get in any differently than the Jews? And then they, they regroup in Antioch at the end of chapter 15 to uh, launch the second missionary journey. And then there's the amazing disagreement between Paul and Barnabas over whether John Mark should be taken along. He bailed in Acts 13. Paul says he can't go on the next journey. Barnabas said, well, he's got to go. Paul said he's not going. I just hear Barnabas saying, you know, Paul, you, you talk a really good game of grace. But when it comes to practicing grace, you fall a bit short. And uh, Paul probably said, hey, I'm not saying he's lost. I'm not saying he's, he can't go to heaven. I'm saying he can't go on the next trip. Maybe he can go on the third trip. He's not going. To the anyway, they fell out, which is, I think, greatly encouraging, because if we didn't see problems in the early church, most of us would want to give up, because we see a lot of problems in the contemporary church. We know God blessed them. Maybe he'll bless us. So they tried to go back to Asia Minor. Silas replaces Barnabas. They end up going to Asia Minor, to Lystra, and finding out that Timothy had been converted. So he joins the team. And then every door is closed. They knock on doors. They try to knock down doors, and they're frustrated. And the indication is they weren't frustrated by unbelievers or by satanic opposition. The Lord was closing these doors. And so he redirects them through the Macedonian call, and then they conclude that the Lord has called us 
to cross the Aegean from the east to the west. And that's when Luke joins the apostolic band and the third person becomes first person. Now we're going. So Luke is with them. That's the great distinction among the missionary journeys. From Jerusalem to Rome, a year in the book of Acts, the new book by Ronnie Collier Stevens. It's available right now, by the way. The book was actually released, I believe, earlier this year. It was released in March. I didn't say anything about it until uh, less than a month ago because there's this strange conviction, almost amounting to a superstition, that you can't start a daily devotional book until January. (laughs) So I kept it kind of quiet. Until now. Well, there's a book signing at Second Presbyterian Church, the Bookmark Bookstore, which, by the way, is one of my favorite places to stop for a bookstore here in the city. King over there who manages the bookstore does an incredible job. And I was there just the other day, and he said, hey, Ronnie Stevens is going to have a book signing here. And right away, I thought, we've got to get Ronnie in the studio and talk about it. But December the 19th, Tuesday, from 11 to 1 p.m., the church Bookstore, the Bookmark Bookstore is located at 4055 Poplar Avenue, and you're going to be there signing books. Poplar at Goodlett. Poplar yes. and Goodlett, yes, they're in the it's corner. Second Press. Second yeah. Presbyterian. Le- uh, yes, 11 to 1 this coming Tuesday. Yeah. How do you avoid writer's cramp? Well, <laughs> uh, I haven't had to sign that many books, so I think there's no great danger of me uh, getting writer's cramp from signing books. So, Ronnie, it is always a pleasure, my dear friend, to have you here with us here on the Bot Radio Network. Thank you so much for sharing again the book, From Jerusalem to Rome, A Year in the Book of Acts. Thanks for having me, Byron. God bless you. Well, friends, that's all the time we have on this edition of Mid-South Viewpoint here on the Bot Radio Network. Thanks for stopping by. I'm Byron Tyler, and we'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye. If you would like to listen to today's show again, go to BotRadioNetwork.com and look for Mid-South Viewpoint under the broadcast tab. The show is also available on your favorite podcast platforms. Some shows have video of the interviews as well and can be viewed at Byron Tyler Radio on YouTube or on our Bot Radio Network mobile app.